This episode of The Transmission is brought to you by Audible.com, the leader in spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. For details, go to audiblepodcast.com slash transmission. The Transmission, episode 58, April 5th, 2009. This conversation we're having right now, we already had it. Yes. Then what am I going to say next? I don't know. Ha! Then your theory is wrong. Aloha from the island, Lost fans. You are tuned into The Transmission. This is a podcast devoted to the TV show Lost. I'm Jen. And I'm Ryan. And we're here to discuss the latest episode, Whatever Happened, Happened. And we certainly hope you all had a great week. We had a great week. We celebrated our 15th anniversary. That's right. And also on April 1st, yes, April Fool's Day, um, Lost won a Peabody Award. Yay! So definitely congratulations. Definitely well-deserved. I thought it was funny that Carlton Cuse thought it was an April Fool's joke. But <laughs> well, it was very well-deserved. And it wasn't a joke and neither is hopefully us being together but in any case what are we going to do today we'll recap the episode in eight minutes or less then we're going to share our thoughts in greater detail we hear from you all everybody in our feedback segment and oh, what's this we actually have a little more filming to cover in the forward cabin cool so, you ready let's get lost This was episode 11 of season 5, Whatever Happened, Happened. And once again, we have a sort of conventional flashback and on the island story. So let's start with the flashback. Kate drives to a house in the suburbs listening to Patsy Cline. Mm -hmm. She has Aaron with her. He's still a baby. And as she walks up to the house, she's singing Catch a Falling Star. Mm -hmm. Cassidy opens the door and Kate says that Sawyer sent her. She gave Cassidy a stack of cash for Clementine and says Cassidy should know that her father cared. But Cassidy asked why Sawyer didn't come back, and when Kate explains that he jumped from the chopper to save the rest of them, Cassidy says Sawyer was a coward. He said that he never called and says that Kate now has the same look in her face that she did when Sawyer ditched her. Cassidy asks if Aaron is Sawyer's baby, and Kate says no. Cassidy realizes that the baby isn't Kate's either. She asks why Kate told the truth about what happened on the island and leaving people behind, but why she's still lying about Aaron. Kate says she has to. We return to the scene at the dock once again with Kate, Jack, son, and Saeed, and Ben, and Kate drives off. They stop at a supermarket, Kate and Aaron, and while shopping, Kate loses track of Aaron and starts to panic. She finds him with a blonde woman who, for a moment, looked a little bit like Claire from behind. Kate returns to Cassidy's house to tell her that they're going back to the island. She tells Cassidy she almost expected to lose Aaron forever at the supermarket. Cassidy says that's because Kate took him from his mother. Kate says Aaron needed her, but Cassidy says that she needed Aaron. She says, Sawyer broke your heart. How else were you supposed to fix it? Finally, Kate goes to Carol Littleton and tells her that Aaron is her grandson and that Claire is alive. Carol asks why they left Claire behind, and Kate says that Claire disappeared, so she she took care of Aaron and said he was her baby. She says, Aaron is waiting for you, and she knows that I'm leaving. Carol asks where she's going, and Kate says, I'm going back to find your daughter. On the island in 1977, Jim comes to in the jungle and finds Ben. Meanwhile, back at Othersville, Horace is organizing the response to the attack and jailbreak. 
Jack questions how Saeed could have escaped, and Horace said, one of us is involved. Kate helps Roger pull the burn van out of the house, and Jin arrives with Ben, and Roger runs after them. Sawyer is scanning the security monitors when Kate shows up, asking if Saeed shot Ben, but Sawyer tells her to just stop asking questions. Just then, Horace shows up, and they check the cell, and they find the janitor's keys. Horace says that it was either Roger, Willie, or that new guy, Jack. Sawyer says that he'll look into it and asks Miles to come along. Sawyer asks Miles to round up Jack, Hurley, and Kate and hold them. He then goes to Roger, who's waiting outside the infirmary. Roger asks who shot his son. Sawyer says he doesn't know, but he's working on it and asks Roger if he has his keys. Roger realizes he doesn't have them. Inside, Juliet is trying to save Ben because their doctor is down at the looking glass. She tells Sawyer that she can't fix things and that they need a real surgeon. Meanwhile, Miles is keeping Jack, Kate, and Hurley under house arrest, and Hurley thinks he'll disappear because they changed the future. Miles says, no, it doesn't work like that. Saeed always shot Ben, so Ben can't die. Sawyer shows up at the house and asks Jack to save Ben, but Jack says no. Kate is shocked and says he can't let Ben die. Jack says 30 years from now, Ben will lock them up to get him to save him. And he says, I've already done this before and I did it for you. Kate says that the mess is all their fault, that they caused it. And Jack says he always tried to fix things, but made Maybe the island has its own plan. He was just getting in the way. Kate says she doesn't like the new Jack, who's just waiting for something to happen, but Jack points out that Kate didn't like the old Jack either. Kate goes to donate blood for Ben. Juliet asks her why Jack wouldn't help, and she also wants to know what happened when they were off the island. Kate says that they were engaged. Roger shows up, and Kate tells him that he can stay while Juliet goes to tend to Ben. Roger tells Kate that Ben let Saeed out to get back at him. He asks if she had kids, and she says no. He says that he thought he'd be a great dad, but Ben's mother died the day he was born. He says, I guess a boy just needs his mother. Just then, Ben goes into hypoxic shock. Back in the cabin, Hurley is still trying to sort out the time traveling. Miles calls him a dingbat, <laughs> saying time isn't a straight line for them anymore, that they're in the present, but Ben's past. Hurley asks why Ben didn't remember getting shot by Saeed when he was a kid. Miles pauses and says, I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. Juliet goes to Kate and says that she can't fix Ben, that he's going to die. Kate says that someone must be able to help, and Juliet says maybe they can help, they being the others. Kate says that she'll take Ben to them alone because Juliet has to stay. She has a whole life there and she has to hold off Sawyer. Kate drives out to the sonic fence and Sawyer drives up to later behind her. He says he's here to help and he disables the fence. Sawyer said he wondered why she was helping Ben and and Juliet told him no matter what he's going to grow up to be, it's wrong to let a child die. He says that he's doing it for Juliet. Juliet shows up to talk to Jack and he kicks Miles and Hurley out and confronts him in the shower. She says, why aren't you helping and why did you come back? He says that they came back to save everyone, but she says they didn't need saving. Juliet tells Jack that he came back for himself and asks why. Jack says he came back because he was supposed to. Juliet asks what he's supposed to do. Jack says, I don't know yet. And she says, you better figure it out. Sawyer and Kate are walking with Ben, and Sawyer asks about Clementine. Kate says that she's beautiful, she already has a little attitude, and adds that uh, Cassidy thinks that Sawyer jumped out of the helicopter because he was afraid what would happen if he didn't. 
Sawyer says they wouldn't have worked out that he wasn't fit to be Kate's boyfriend any more than he was fit to be Clementine's dad. She says, well, you're doing okay with Juliet. And he says he did a lot of growing up over the last three years. Suddenly the others show up. Sawyer says that the kid is shot and that it's a problem for both sides. Albert comes out of the jungle and recognizes young Ben. Kate asks if he can help him. Richard says, if I take him, he won't be the same. He'll forget this ever happened and his innocence will be gone. He will always be one of us. Sawyer and Kate agree anyway. One of the others tells Richard that they shouldn't do anything without telling Ellie and Charles. Richard says, I don't answer to either of them. Mm. He takes Ben and carries him into the temple. Finally, a last scene in the future. Ben wakes up in the infirmary, and the first person he sees is John Locke. Ben is shocked and speechless, and Locke says, Welcome back to the land of the living. And And thud. thud. And that's Whatever Happened Happened in under eight minutes. We'll take a quick break, and we come back. We'll share our thoughts about this episode in greater detail. We'll get to our thoughts on Whatever Happened Happened and get to your thoughts in You All Everybody. But first, we wanted to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 50,000 titles to choose from that can be downloaded to your iPod, listened to on your computer, whatever you got, and played back anytime, anywhere, just like the transmission. Thanks to Audible.com, you can get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. If you've always wanted to read the many books mentioned on Lost, Audible.com is a great way to go. For example, you can pick up Survivors of the Chancellor by Jules Verne. Survivors of the Chancellor is a cheery, happy, uplifting tale about a (laughs) shipwreck and mutiny and suicide. Um, Regina is seen reading it aboard the Kahana just before she jumps overboard in the episode Gian. Well, so you can see what got her going and uh, pick up the book. You can make it your free pick with this offer. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash transmission that's audiblepodcast.com slash transmission all right so whatever happened happened it was another classic flashback character-based episode but this one was starring your not frequently favorite character kate so i almost fear to ask you what did you think about this episode it was great okay evangeline lily was wonderful for once kate wasn't completely annoying i thought it was great you know i understood kate a little bit better after seeing this episode it made the episode 316 make a lot more sense because i was really frustrated after that episode Mm. and this really helped me understand it better i thought it was a great episode all around well i'm glad to hear that i mean i absolutely agree um you know i were like any other fan and we have favorites and less favorite characters and certainly we've given a lot of grief recently to Jack and Kate. Unfairly. To, to some extent. I mean, yes, I issued an apology to Jack fans last week, and I think, you know, maybe we're sorry a little bit for some of the Kate uh, bashing. hate bashing <laughs> that we've been doing um, because this episode uh, filled in a lot of spaces that I really felt that I understood her. I had compassion for her character. I could understand where she was coming from, and I'm glad that you mentioned 316 because, again, we really tried hard to parse whatever it was that drove her onto the plane after, you know, storming away at the uh, at the dock. So how quickly could she make that turnaround and and something happens to Aaron and she's there to get on the plane? And I thought this did a reasonably good job of explaining how that went. I did did think it was strange.
strange that uh, if it is that she gave Aaron to his uh, his grandmother, why wouldn't she tell Jack that? We said that would not be something you know you'd be afraid to tell Jack. Jack of anybody would understand that that was the right thing to do. So why it's was not, it such a big? It's not an understanding or not understanding. It just hurts. She just didn't want to talk about it because of how painful it, it was to give yeah. it up. So she, she, she. It doesn't matter what she did with Aaron, but she just didn't want to talk about it. That's more. the okay. way I interpreted interpreted it. Well, I can see that, and you know, as far as identifying with her, I think you know, being a parent has a part to do with it. The scene in the supermarket just it it really hit home. I think. Oh, the scene in the supermarket, and especially the scene where she says goodbye, ripped my heart out oh man i mean I, I i gotta admit it got a little dusty in the living room you know i, I had to kind of get some tissues i thought uh it was really effectively well done definitely a high point for evangeline uh lily as an actress um but some other great moments with her you know i thought that the confession to carol littleton was was handled pretty well you know carol could probably have been a little more excited if about i were what carol was... <laughs> i would have been enraged and confused and i would have shown a little bit more emotion but, uh, but... she's been through a lot i guess yeah. And, you know, Jack just recently perplexed her before that encounter. So who knows? But I also thought... What a chicken that makes Jack, though. I mean, he says Aaron and she says what? And he doesn't even bother to explain. He ran out of here like it was on fire. (laughs) I thought that was interesting. I thought the encounter with Cassidy, especially the initial one when she's still icy and sarcastic and she calls Sawyer a coward. I mean, that made me actually mad at first. But when I thought about it, I thought it was true to what Cassidy's response to the story would be. I thought that that was genuine. I tried to see it from her point of view, you know. She has a relationship with this guy and he takes her money and he runs away and she's pregnant and, and she tries to say this is you know she goes to visit him in jail and he denies having a child I would have been angry too right, I, that's right. exactly what I would have said and yet they show that their relationship progressed to the point where she's you know seen as anti Kate when she goes to visit and uh, that you know they're they they're close enough that they can speak bluntly with each other she continues to kind of hammer home these uh, these these statements to Kate that definitely have an impact but i thought that that again the evolution of that relationship was really well handled and of course the big reveal was that the reason why Kate went back to the island was to find Claire how'd you like that well, she says it, but I don't believe it's entirely the case still. He's, I mean, I think she still has her own agenda. I think she still has her own motives. And maybe she does want to go and find Claire, but I don't think that's the only thing. Well, I mean, I think uh, I I thought that it was a reasonable uh, decision for her to make specifically because of a couple of things. You know, one, uh, she thought that it was Claire that picked up Aaron in the supermarket yeah. and she was almost convinced that that's what was happening. And of course, she had that freaky experience with the vision of Claire saying, don't you dare take him back, Kate. So, you know, certainly she's been haunted by Claire all this time. And so that moment in the supermarket, she felt, she says, you know, I kind of almost felt relieved that this was it. Finally, the jig was up. Finally, I'm going to lose him because he's not mine. And, you know, as uh, as uh, Roger says on the island, um, I guess a, a kid needs his mother, and mm-hmm. I think she felt that. So I don't think it's I don't I'm, I'm hoping that you know there's not some ulterior motives necessarily. I think there's probably more to it. In addition to as I said last week, I thought she was going back because there's nothing else left for her in the real world. So why else? Why not go back to the island with Jack? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I can see I can see it going either way. But I thought that that was again uh, a reasonable explanation for why she would go back. So Roger Linus doesn't seem to be quite as evil as we previously thought. Well, again, you know... uh, I mean, he's not a nice guy, but... 
well, you you know, you had to already last week, you said, well, maybe he's not such a terrible dad. And now again, we see again more of a human side for him. Uh, of co- I liked that he reacted as he should have reacted to his son being shot. I mean, again, he might be a drunk, he might be abusive, but uh, with a shock to the system like that, you should definitely come to your senses and be worried about it. And I thought that Roger Linus as a character, again, kind of got that, that nice additional uh, d- dimension to it. Um, but did you get the feeling that he's a little, you know, soft on Kate there? No, I mean, I think he's vulnerable and wanted somebody to talk to. And conversely, I didn't think Kate was flirting with him. I think they were... You know, I think they were two scared, freaked out people that were just there together. Okay, well, I I, I can see that. I kind of thought I felt a little bit of flirting there, and that was going to get a little creepy for me. But I can see what you're saying, especially because, you know, he identified with Kate because she's in the motor pool, but without qualifications. And he's like, oh, well, isn't that like the Dharma Initiative to throw us into these uh, low paying jobs that I wouldn't have gotten on the submarine had, had I known that that's what they were going to do? The best part of the episode for me was a conversation, though, between Miles and Hurley. Absolutely. I think that's going to be a high point for just about everyone. Um, It's one of those conversations that's not directed at each other. It's directed at the fans. And so you can either think that's hilarious or you can be kind of annoyed at it. But I think it was handled really well. And of the characters in the entire show right now, with the exception of Daniel Faraday, who is still missing, I think that the only two people who could have pulled that conversation off are, you know, cranky Miles and, you know, very curious and confused. Hurley. I thought it was brilliant. And even, I mean, even if the episode itself were weak apart from that, which it isn't, it was a very good episode, I felt like this was the standalone part that we really needed. We, we needed an explanation in, presented in such a way that it felt like a conversation between characters and not do you know what I mean? Right. I mean, they've done a lot of things where they've sort of psyched us out. They sort of faked us out. They've tricked us. They've defied our expectations. And there's a possibility that that's what's going on here, too. But actually, I did feel that it was sort of the deep breath. It was sort of the hand on the shoulder and say, OK, fans, if you are among those that are confused or have been confused about what's going on, here it is, you know. We appreciate all of the theories and the alternative futures and changing the past, um, but that's not what's going on. This has always happened. Please get it through your skulls. You know, you dingbat, you idiot. I thought I thought that it was just great. No, I liked it a lot, but I got to say what I didn't like this episode was Jack. Oh, no. So you're not done with him yet. Well, it wasn't the fact that he refused to work on Ben. It was the fact that he refused to work on Ben after it became clear to him that it was important to Juliet and to Kate and they just wanted him to do this and they felt it was important and he had too much pride to just suck it up and do it. Well, you know, that's interesting. I I kind of, I, I was not as frustrated with Jack. I can certainly see that in the moment and where I end of the other characters, I would certainly see the crossing your arms and sitting back and saying, you know what, I'm not going to participate in this, that that would make you mad. And it certainly made me mad a little bit, but I actually thought Jack in, in being defiant about his inaction was, in fact, making a very significant decision. And I thought that he articulated well. One, yes, I have already been extorted through extreme circumstances to save this guy's life. And we know what became of that. He still went on to be a terrible person. And not only that, I thought that it was really clear. You know, uh, I'm always trying to be the leader. I'm always trying to do things and fix things. And it never turned out. It didn't turn out. So I begin to get the sense. I begin to... 
maybe become a man of faith, that there is a larger plan here that I just should stop interfering with, that I should just let whatever happens happen, well, and that I'm I not going to be a part of that. I would have believed that if he hadn't pulled out the, you didn't like the old me line. It felt like spiteful. Like, uh, Yeah, it seemed like he was doing it. He, that part of the reason why was he was just, you know, lashing out in general. His feelings were hurt. I can see the pride there. Certainly the pride when he gets confronted by Juliet and he says, I came back to save you. And she says rightfully that, you know, we didn't need saving. Things were fine until you guys showed up. But again, even in that conversation, he says, I know, again, maybe I'm becoming a man of faith, that my purpose is going to become clear. I just don't know what it is yet. That's a frustrating thing to hear, but I think that that could reasonably be what Jack is up to. And, you know, what have we seen? We've seen Saeed. He felt that when he arrived on the island, back on the island, he's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is ridiculous. And he goes, now I know why I'm here. And for him, his reason to be there was to shoot Ben. Yeah. And so Kate, maybe she finds the way reason why she's there is because she has this new level of compassion for children, maybe, and she wants to save Ben's life. Sawyer uh, goes with her. He believes he's doing it for Juliet. So all of our characters are finding why they need to be there, even if it's fulfilling this uh, fate that was supposed to happen already. So I think that it's reasonable that Jack's moment is coming. And I think, given, again, that the entire series started with Jack on his back in the jungle, I have no doubt in my mind that as frustrated as we are with Jack right now, he's got to be a big deal coming up. There's Whatever his his destiny is that he's waiting for on the island, it's not going to be a small thing. No, it definitely won't be. I mean, I, I really got to say I like the fact that it is the inaction of Jack and the intercession of Kate and Sawyer that... That's why Ben ends up in the care of the others. That's why he's always one of them. That's why he loses his innocence because of our losties. They created the monster that tortured them through in the first part of the series. I thought that was a great twist. That was a great twist. And and I think we're going to find out that they've they've pretty much caused it all. You know, oh, the, the entire thing is is them. The the fact the line that Kate says, like, we caused this, this is our fault, um, that's gonna be key. And I like the scene where Richard Alper is explaining the consequences of what they're going to do to Sawyer and Kate and maybe I'm projecting but I got the feeling that while he's explaining it and you look at Sawyer and Kate's face they are realizing what's happening right then they oh, are yeah. suddenly aware yeah. oh my god this was us the whole time uh-huh. you know I think that again they created this whole mess that they're in the middle of well that reminds me of Sun you know I oh, said sorry. like when we learned the whole thing I guess back in season three she pretty much caused her own problems. Well, she cre- she created the circumstances by which uh, Jin became a killer, for one. Right, and and I think, you know, that's kind of a, a microcosm of what's happening to everybody. They're they're creating their own suffering. That's an interesting point. Uh, I had I'd forgotten about Sun recently, but I think that if we sit back and probably analyze all of our characters, we're going to find sort of that uh, we made we you we made our bed and now we're we have to sleep in it. Sort exactly. Of thing. Excellent. Well, um, one of the things that comes up in this episode, the question about uh, why didn't Ben remember being shot by a seed when he was a kid, and Miles goes, huh. I hadn't thought about that. And then at the very end of the episode, Richard Alpert says, well, you know, if I take him, he's not going to remember any of this. And I guess you had the question and answer to a very big issue in one episode. Are you satisfied with that? Not entirely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really hoped and and I, you know, like I said, I saw it in Ben's face, some sort of recognition. And I just thought it made everything way more interesting when when I thought that Ben remembered everything and it was kind of taking it out on them a little bit. And it just seemed like a very convenient way to get around that. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree that it was a little too pat, a little too smug of the Lost Writers. And perhaps 
there, it's not what it sounds like it is. We definitely have a lot of conversation on this issue in you all, everybody. So we'll probably save it for that segment. But I'll agree with you that uh, Lost as a story certainly seemed much more interesting when you thought that deep down in Ben's memories, since the beginning of the time where we saw him in season two, that he had all of this, all of these memories in his mind. Um, as far as big issues that we've been following since the beginning of the show, I guess we should kind of get a little bit into shipper stuff. Um, we've had some frustration and some interest among our listeners and ourselves about how the uh, uh, what do they say parallelogram uh-huh. I think that was Russell yeah Russell blog, in California who calls it that the parallelogram between Jack Kate Sawyer and Juliet and it's frustrating if they're going to give us that or move to that or are they going to get away from that and this episode I think gave you some pretty good anchors as yes. far as where they're going yeah um, absolutely he he was never meant to be with Kate I, or at least that's what they want us to think right he says that outright he says that uh, I'm helping you I don't know why you're doing this for Ben necessarily but Juliet made a point and I'm doing this for Juliet, so he's definitely loyal to her. I think the only other sides of that parallelogram, though, would be the Jack and Kate side. And it certainly doesn't look from this week that Jack and Kate are in a good place. They've been no. broken up. Uh, do you think that there is room for reconciliation there? Only if they start understanding each other better. I think she got very frustrated with Jack because of his refusal to help. And and I, also earlier, before they got on the plane, they were broken up because he yeah. was all obsessed and acting strange again. But actually, I think that's kind of key. We see that they used to be engaged, and then Kate, and then Jack starts freaking out and getting addicted to painkillers and uh-huh. having these visions and being weird and starts to become at, you know manic again about getting back to the island, and that's what turned Kate off Jack. Uh, she's now frustrated with the new Jack because he's waiting around for something to happen but maybe her opinion will change when jack finally hits that groove and gets his <laughs> his mission from the island and moves forward but maybe that's a good question for uh, the shippers to answer um well uh, one line that certainly stood out in a big way this episode was what richard alpert says when one of his other hostiles goes we better check with charles and ellie about this and he goes i don't answer to either of them mm-hmm. so you know i guess charles we're going to have to believe is Charles Widmore, young right. Charles Widmore, and uh, Ellie, most likely Eloise Hawking, uh-huh. and the two of them clearly at some point of leadership among these uh, hostiles, among these indigenous peoples on the island. Um, but what does it mean? What does what does Richard Alpert's statement mean? Does that mean he's the boss of them? Does that mean he's below them but doesn't uh, okay. want to listen to them? Here's what I think. It's Jacob, Charles, Ellie, and do you, have you ever seen The Godfather? Yes, of course. Okay, you, you know the character Tom Hagen? The lawyer dude. Right. He is Don Corleone's like right-hand man. He's what they call the consigliere, mm. which means he's kind of in charge, but he's really just giving advice to Don Corleone. I think that's what Richard Alpert well, is. Well, I kind of like that. I mean, they've, they've previously described Alpert as kind of an advisor, you know, that he's not part of the chain of command. He's sort of outside of them, and that certainly fits because that character as well was immensely powerful. He had access to all the information. He could have done anything that he wanted, but really he was not playing the game. He just right. was something off on the side. And I certainly, that's the sense that I got from what he said. Um, one of the commenters on a blog kind of pointed out that he's acting a little bit like maybe a priest in a community where he says, well, you know what, when it comes right down to it, I answer to a higher power. Uh-huh. Like, I don't care what really what you guys think when it gets right down to it because it's irrelevant. So I think that could be it. And there have been hints that Richard Alpert predates 
everybody we've met on the island so far that he might have yeah, been around far, for a yeah. long, long time. So there are many, many ways why him him saying that he's not gonna he doesn't answer to them is key. But I certainly like the impression that that means there is probably some conflict possibly between Charles and Ellie, the leaders of the uh, the indigenous peoples, uh-huh. and this Richard fella. But uh, that was, I think, a very key scene. Well, here's something I thought: um, the the guy who comes up to Richard and says, "Don't you think we should go to Charles and Ellie first? Mm-hmm. That was totally Mister Friendly. Uh, Tom Friendly. Yes. You think so? He looked yeah. like him? He, I thought he looked a, a lot like him, and I think he could be him. Well, that'd be kind of a nice touch. It'd be, I mean, I, we, all, we all love Mr. Friendly, yes. and it was kind of a pity that we lost him, so it'd be kind of interesting to revisit that character. Uh, I hope you're right. I'd love to see that. I would love to be right. <laughs> um, in this episode, we had some music. We love talking about the music, and there were a couple of little tunes that stood out, to be sure. Well, Kate was listening to Patsy Cline again. Yep, that's her uh, her theme, her, her story. Her motif. Her light motif, yes. my my super smart uh, book learned friend, um, <laughs> basically her theme. Yes. Okay, and uh, also she sung "Catch a Falling Star," which has been Aaron's theme. Well, does she know that that was his song? See, I don't think so. Just like I don't think that. I mean, okay, "Catch a Falling Star" comes up when Claire tells the adoptive parents, "This is the song you need to sing to him because uh, I forget what the explanation was. My my dad sung it to me, uh-huh. so you need to sing it to the baby." Uh, after that, it turns up in the mobile, right? In in, the, in the medical uh, hatch. In, yeah, in the nursery. And I don't think there was, there may or may not have been information conveyed that that song was important to Aaron. But here, I don't think there's any reasonable explanation that that, that would be the song to sing to him. I just think it's a nice little touch and that it's, you know, really that there's something special about Aaron yeah. and the song is following around. The only possibility that I can think might have happened is if Kate has had more than one visit from creepy ghost Claire and maybe was a little less shrieky. If I had more than one visit from <laughs> creaky, creepy ghost Claire, Aaron would have gone back a lot sooner. I see. Well, <laughs> again, um, but I thought that was a nice touch. Um, I guess finally the locations in this episode, quite a few. Um, Cassidy's house is on Kuhana Place in Waipahu, sort of in our neck of the woods, yep. a little south of us. Um, but interestingly, I know the nephew of the couple that lived there, and he shared some of the emails that were going back and forth during that filming. And all I'll say uh, from that exchange is that having 75 people in camera crews and equipment swarming your home and covering your lawn with all kinds of stuff is not as fun as you might think it is. Oh, I bet. (laughs) Also, um, the supermarket scene, which we all liked, that was the Times supermarket on uh, South King and Baratania. Uh Um, And what I thought was interesting is when we covered that shoot here on the transmission, I talked a great length about an exterior shot where they were out in the parking lot and going in. Um, And what I loved was that they took the Times supermarket Supermarket logo, which is a well-known logo here in mm-hmm. Hawaii. It's a local, um, it's a local supermarket. But they just removed some of the letters and moved it around, so Times a supermarket became Tim's supermarket. <laughs> and I was just, I was really looking forward to seeing a Tim's supermarket sign. But I guess, like many things on this show, even though they spend a lot of money to set it up, in the end, if it doesn't make the cut, they don't have the time for it. Right. But definitely very cool to see. So I guess that's it for our two cents here on whatever happened happened. And next, after we take a break, we'll hear from you all, everybody. Hey, Ryan and Jim, what's up? It's John from North Carolina. Wow, guys, that was a really good episode. I think that's uh, going to be in my top three this season. And, I mean, it was just great. It was up there with Jughead and this place is death. I mean, I just liked it, and I don't like Kate episodes. I never do, but I think I'm going to go on record saying this is the best Kate episode of the series. I didn't like last week, but this week really picked it back up. But can't wait to see what y'all think about it, and I'll talk to y'all next week.
See you later. We kick things off with a call from our good friend, John from North Carolina. He agrees with us. This is the best mm-hmm. Kate episode ever. And he says that it was in the top three for the season. What do you think about that? I, d- I don't know about top three. I can think of at least four. Um, it, it, admittedly, there were mythology episodes, but I can think of at least four that I like better. Right. I think one. that you've got mythology episodes and character episodes. I would say as character episodes go, this was a strong one. In fact, yeah, it was. now that I think about it, I might put it above Naveen Andrews' uh, Saeed's backstory last week. To really? To some extent. I think Evangeline Lilly really shined brightly, and uh, poor Naveen Andrews had to basically play a tortured person to some extent, but he spent a lot of time in the cage, and yeah. he had to play that he was high on psychotropic drugs, which has its comedic value. You, but may not necessarily ring true for a lot of folks. So, But very good stuff. Who else have we got to hear from? We have calls from Ryan, Jessica, and Lee. Hi there. This is Ryan calling from Utah back in the mainland. First time caller. Well, it appears the reason Ben is the way he is is obviously from interaction with their own losties. And as we start to see that Ben is going into the dark trenches of the temple, it also starts to you know, shed light on the reason Rousseau shot all of her fellow um, survivors back in earlier in the season. As we saw Montad fall in the hole and the others went down there after him, we later flash forward to see her shooting them, saying that they weren't the same and they had changed. Now, we had been debating if, you know, it was Rousseau who was crazy or if they really had change, and it's actually starting to look like Rousseau was right, and that somehow going down into the temple changes you. Now, I'm not sure if Smokey um, just changes something within you, or if he actually creates a new version of you. That's yet to be seen, but it is interesting that Ben said that he was born on the island, um, perhaps aware of the fact that he was factually born outside the island, but the real Benjamin Linus that we know, the protector and lover of the island, as he claims, was perhaps indeed born down in the temple. Hope you guys have a good one. Look forward to next week. Thanks. Bye. Hey, guys. Love the podcast. This is Jessica in Birmingham. I'm a first-time caller but long-time listener. Um, I really enjoyed this last episode um, whatever happened, happened with it being totally Kate-centric. I was not a huge fan of Kate before we got um, this episode, and now I really like her. I I got a little misty-eyed when she had to leave Aaron behind. Um, but I have a theory for you real quick um, in the... Um, in regards to Richard taking Ben on the condition of his lost innocence, it seems to me that this is going to be directly related to the illness as seen by Danielle after her team emerged from the temple. And I think we'll probably um, see a lot of parallel in why her team kind of changed and never seemed quite right again. And then they came upon all that violence and then how that will directly relate to Ben's new evil side. So anyway, um, can't wait to listen to the podcast, and um, we will talk to you later. Bye. Hey, Ryan and Jen. This is Lee from North Carolina. Long time, first time. Up until this episode, I was thinking that the Ajira airline folks were in an alternative 2007, what with Frank and Son in a rundown Dharma intake building, which seemed abandoned and not taken over by the others. 
so I was convinced that this alternative future was due to young Ben's death. But after this episode, whatever happened, happened. I believe that Ben, Locke, and the Ajera folks are not in 2007, but at a place in time after the purge, but before it was taken over by the others. My favorite part of this episode was the shout-out to the fans in the conversation between Miles and Hurley. They voiced everything we fans have been thinking. Thanks for the podcast. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for those calls. So both Ryan and Jessica pointing out what we thought we learned or questioned about Danielle and her team, Mm -hmm. and that given what Richard tells us this episode, that yes, going into the temple changes you. So Danielle was correct. She did recognize a change in her team, and I guess felt that it was necessary to kill them. Well, I think... I think maybe they did change, but I think she went a little crazy, too. I think it's a combination, a little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> I definitely think that uh, given what she went through, that yes, she did go bonkers in the end. But I do, I thought that it was uh, certainly a good point. Um, and I remember also that we had kind of said uh, one of the things that Danielle Rousseau always feared was that the rest of the members of her team, once they'd been changed, would actually get back into the real world. She thought that that was the biggest uh-huh. risk. And so now I'm like, wow. So if she was afraid that someone touched by the temple gets off the island Ben got into the temple and got off the island That's he's been running around off the island true. so yeah. maybe that was a really bad thing to have happen I definitely like Ryan's point about uh, and uh, even John Fisher on our blog mentioned that hey this is why maybe Ben said this is that I was born on the island that if his life does in fact kind of begin again when he goes into the temple oh. He was born again. I mean, like, you can sort of see the religious uh, ties here that uh, oh I was born gosh, on the island. Of course, because... of course. But the uh, Jossie on the blog did point out that Ben also confessed to Locke later in The Man Behind the Curtain that he wasn't born on the island. That, that was something that he lied about. So Ben did not actually believe or deeply believe or you know forget everything and believe that he was born on the island. He was lying at that point. Right. But certainly a, a, a good thought. And finally, Lee, um, like many people, thought that when we saw uh, everybody in the broken down Othersville that it was a different Othersville that they still had the logos up that it was that it was a version of Othersville that had not been t- occupied and did not have book club meetings and now Lee is saying well I guess that's not what we're seeing so what it must be is sometime what did he say between the purge but before the hostiles move in that'd be like yeah. 90, the early 90s or thereabouts. yeah I'm, I'm really thinking that that Locke and Ben are sometime if not like in the future from now at least like in the current time yeah I also believe that they're in the present I did have I mean present being 2007 right, or so post right. Ajira crash um, but I had to think about why I thought that and part of it is because I'm confusing what we saw when Sawyer Juliet and them were jumping around and they end up at the beach camp, camp and they find uh, Vincent's collar and they uh-huh. see it's all trashed that was them that jumped or somehow yeah. ended up way in the future and not Ben and the folks that we're seeing now in the infirmary but for whatever reason I don't think that they're uh, they've stepped into this middle space I certainly feel that what we're supposed to believe is after the you know after the purge after Ben helps them kill everybody off that they just move in and take over Othersville the same uh-huh. way that they just moved in and killed everybody in the military camp right so now we have calls from MindStage, Mr. Jacob, and Levi. Hi, Ryan and Jen. This is MindStage in Michigan. Long-time listener, first-time caller. As an episode, in many ways, I think this was the weakest of Season 5, which has been spectacular so far. Um, Evangeline Lilly was amazing in a couple of scenes, but overall I thought the whole, like the whole transporting of Ben to the others was just way too long and drawn out. And the handoff to Richard, where he indicated that Ben wouldn't remember anything, seemed to be a pretty weak story point. Now, that said, I do appreciate that many holes were filled in this episode. 
such as what really happened to Aaron, and the time travel conversation was nothing short of brilliant. Thanks again. Great show. Can't wait for Wednesday night. Keep up the good work, guys. Bye-bye. Aloha, Ryan and Jen, my two favorite Hawaiians, excluding uh, World Series champion Shane Victorino. But you guys are still pretty awesome. This is Mr. Jacob calling once again um, to talk about whatever happened, happened. Uh, I was another flashback, which I loved. Uh, we saw some good development with Jack. It's nice to see him challenging fate and uh, becoming a little Locke-esque, actually. Um, he's always been the main character, but ever since getting back to the aisle, he's seemed kind of directionless, so it's nice to see him on a good track again. Um, after a uh, Kate-centric episode, I've got a question for Jen. Why the Kate hate? Um, you know, she's certainly not my favorite character, but that doesn't make me hate her. She doesn't make me hate her. I'm not calling you out. You know, you're, you're certainly not alone. But um, there's just a lot of Kate hate, and I just don't quite understand it. Um, and I understand most Kate haters don't hate the actress, but they seem ready to let the character just drop off the face of the earth. She had a great episode last night. It had a lot of heart, and, uh, you know, now she has a definite mission to get Claire back, which is something we've all wanted to find out more about what's going on with Claire. So what's not to love? All right, guys. Well, I'm out of here. Keep up the magnificent work. Uh, we love you. Bye. Hi, Ryan and Jen. This is Levi from Texas. I just want to say Kate, Kate, and more Kate, because it was a Kate-centric episode. But I also wanted to say yay, because Kate and Jack, I guess I'm kind of a shipper, but I'm glad that the whole Kate, Juliet, Sawyer thing blew over pretty quickly. And uh, so now Kate and Jack have a shot at it again. Overall, it was an okay episode. It it uh, brought the story along. It wasn't like a shocker. Uh, Jen, I know you don't like Kate that much, but you have to admit that she... I think she did pretty well in this episode. Saving Ben and everything. So, uh, you got to give her that. We saw Jack half-naked, which was weird, but... I felt that it needed to be mentioned. So I guess I'll await your podcast and uh, hope you guys have a great time watching the episode. Mahalo for those calls. Yet more first-time callers. We love to hear them here on the transmission. And we'll start with Mind Stage. He thought that it was the weakest episode of the season, but that Evangeline Lily was awesome. So she I was think awesome. We can agree with that. But definitely taking issue with the uh, the Richard saying he's not going to remember everything. That that was kind of weak. That yeah, was kinda I, I take a little bit of issue with it too. I'm sure they're going to come up with a way to explain what they mean by that, but for now, I'm a little unsatisfied. Yeah, well, there's been there's a lot of discussion on our blog about that point, and I think a lot of people are making the fair point that maybe Richard is saying that he's not going to remember maybe the rescue and the temple stuff, but he still might remember portions of his life. Someone mentioned that he still, as an adult, kept the dolls that Annie made for him, and he right. wouldn't do that if he didn't remember Annie, for example. Yeah. And the fact that he doesn't remember being rescued could, could further explain why he thinks Juliet saved his life and why he still thinks Juliet is someone that, you know, he kind of has that Florence Nightingale thing going Uh on and I think you look like her. So there's a number of reasons why it might not be a complete mental wipe. It just might, he might not remember certain segments of it. And our friend Mark from the mainland said, maybe he's sort of going to remember that he sort of is not, but it's going to be just deja vu. This is going to be an explanation for deja vu, which is very Matrix-like, I suppose. Yeah, it is. Um, Mr. Jacob, I guess we're his third and 
second favorite Hawaiians there, but uh, <laughs> he says that he thinks Jack is becoming like Locke, that he's challenging fate, that he's standing up, um, and sees he sees some Lockness in that. What do you what do you think? Well, I mean, there's always been like the kind of the dichotomy between the two, and I think it would be fitting if they kind of became each other. Mm-hmm. I I did mention that you know I feel that Jack is becoming a man of faith, and he's resolute in the fact that something is coming, even though he can't articulate to Juliet what that is. So I suppose that's very Locke-like. I like that observation. And both um, Mr. Jacob and Levi kind of calling you out a little, saying, hey, what's with all the Kate hate? It's not hate exactly. It's frustration with the way that the character is written. I think she makes a lot of bad decisions at the service of the plot. I think she's the repository for a lot of lazy writing Mm, and bad decisions on the part of the writers. That's what frustrates me about Kate. I wish they made her a more fully developed woman instead of just a person that runs around from well, guy Well, remember to guy in season one, we'd sort of joke like, well, one, she's always wet. And two, yeah. she always says, hey, wait, I'm coming with you. And that I, was pretty much what she did. I mean, I after this episode, I have to say I have a new respect for Kate. There you go. Well, there's Jen giving Kate her due. Yeah. And I kind of liked what Mr. Jacobs said. I mean, one of the things that Kate says is I'm here to look for Claire. Well, hey, at least somebody's looking for Claire. Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, if there's anything that her character is now moving in the right direction is that she's doing something that definitely a lot of fans have been frustrated that someone else isn't doing. And finally, Levi from Texas, I guess he's a shipper, and he says that he (laughs) thinks Jack and Kate have a chance. I didn't think that that was true. It certainly didn't look good this week. Well, no, it didn't. I think it would take a lot of communication and a lot of sacrifice on both their parts. And uh, thanks for pointing out that Jack was half naked again. He does seem to get confronted in showers quite a bit. That seems to be one of his themes here on the show we could probably go back and make a a recap video of all of his shower confrontations that's okay yeah we'll probably skip that next up calls from jeff sobeka and kyle hello ryan and jen this is jeff from utah just calling in uh just want to talk about the whatever happened happened overall i thought it was a pretty weak episode um and i have to say actually though i usually don't like kate um but this episode actually helped develop her character a lot. And I think it was really important to see the change in her focus. I was all about her, but as she gave Aaron up, um, it was nice to see how her focus changed and how she's become a little less Kate-centric about herself. Um, the other thing that I really actually liked about this, this episode, which got me thinking, was about Jack's purpose. And how Juliet said, um, in the when they were in the shower, uh, told him to find out. He better find out what his purpose is soon. And it got me thinking uh, if perhaps Jack plays a, a major role in um, the upcoming season finale, and if he had something to do with the Swan or with the incident about to happen. Um, just a thought. Just wanted to know what you were thinking. And uh, thanks again for this great podcast. Hi, guys. This is Sobeka from Boston. Happy anniversary, first off. But I'm actually just going to comment on the episode, Whatever Happened, Happened. Um, I actually really liked it, and I usually hate hate episodes as a rule almost, but I really, really liked it. Um, And I was surprised by a lot of things, especially when Kate said that she was going back to find Claire. We all assumed that it would be to find Sawyer again, but... It seems she had a bit of a different reasoning, and I thought it was a really great take on what happened for them to explain that Kate 
really wanted to do this for herself, take Aaron for herself to make herself feel better. And now she realized that she'd done the wrong thing and done almost a selfish thing and was going back to look for Claire. And I thought that was a really interesting little neat twist because I think we all assumed it was Sawyer. Um, I'm so I'm so filled with questions about what happens with the temple, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your podcast. Thanks, guys. Hi, Ryan and Jen. This is Kyle and Delaware, and uh, I got I really, really, really like the episode. And uh, as the father of a three-year-old little blonde boy, I got to say, the evening of it really, really, really got to me. But uh, overall, I got to say, it's one of the best character-driven episodes this particular season. Um, highlights of the episode just generally were. The character of Kate and uh, Evangeline Lilly's performance, uh, I thought that she did great. She really made me like a character that I had much written off and didn't care she died only a couple of weeks ago. Um, other than that, uh, you know, her performance, uh, the uh, interaction with Kathy, uh, uh, which was, uh, it was nice to see her back and nice to see that. But the conversation between Hurley and Miles about time travel was some of the most terrible stuff that I'd seen this season. It was really, really good. So uh, I got to say it was one of the best character-driven episodes that I had seen this season. It's not on par with the first handful of episodes, but they were just so crazy. Uh, but it is uh, uh, definitely uh, one of the better uh, mid-season episodes of, of the season so far. Really, really impressed. Really, really liked it. And, uh, you know, can't be curious you guys think about it. Bye. Thanks very much for those calls. Now, Jeff there saying that uh, he also agrees that I think Jack will play a key, whatever his destiny is, is that's probably going to be a big issue here at the mm-hmm. end of the season, probably the season finale. But all three of those callers, Jeff, Sobeka, and Kyle, are basically joining along with you in rethinking or having a new respect for Kate's character. Well, it seems like this was the first truly selfless thing that she did. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, right. she was willing to sacrifice what um, she wanted, what, her yeah. security. For the good of Claire and Aaron. Mm-hmm. And actually Aaron's grandmother. I like that specifically we've learned that Kate's inner nature is to run, you uh-huh. know, self-preservation, that selfishness kind of is one of her defining characteristics as we've come to know her. And that might be, again, why we're frustrated with her character And a lot she's as still well. running, but she's running for the good of somebody else. Yeah, I think that uh, it, 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 a lot of folks are seeing the same thing, that this might be kind of a 180 for her character. Actually, trip from Alabama uh, left a very, very, very long um, Lost Line call, but he basically went through all of our characters and pointed out how all of them have kind of had a 180. You know, Jack always trying to fix things, always trying to be the hero. Here, he's basically waiting to see what fate brings Mm -hmm. him. You know, Kate, as we said, not being selfish anymore, trying to help other people. And Sawyer, even once, you know, not being the cad, not being the ultimate 180. Yeah, absolutely. He's a a responsible leader, a family man, and I think that's great. So, a lot of good character development, I think, at least bringing to mind this episode episode did so uh definitely a strong character driven episode for lost we now have calls from jeff mark and lucia hey ryan and jen this is jeff gentry also known as x force 11 calling in about the most recent episode whatever happened happened i just wanted to say i'm really pleased with the writing in this episode and i'm really enjoying james this uh this season they've really uh, taking him, um, you know, the, he's the Han Solo character, the the kind of outcast rebel guy, and now they brought it in full circle around. And I just really like the writing for him this season. It shows his maturity. I especially 
love the scene this evening where he was talking about Kate, saying that, you know, he, he couldn't be Clementine's father, much much less be, you know, responsible in a relationship with Kate. Um, and she comments on how he's doing well with Juliet, and he says how much he's changed. And it, it really shows. I just really uh, appreciate his character. Um, I've kind of liked his character in the past, but this season has really made me, he's been one of my favorites. And, and I'm glad the way they've handled um, his relationship with Juliet and the, the thing with Kate and not trying to make that back into the triangle uh, again. And uh, I just really appreciated the writing on this episode and how it was handled and uh, just look forward to hearing what y'all have to say. Thanks. Bye. How's it? Jen Ryan, it's Mario calling from Houston. And, you know, this answer-packed, albeit slow-paced episode was another winner for me. Now, I've never been much of a Kate hater, but I can definitely understand why the community was going tired of the whole love octagon. But for me, it was a showcase for Kate to finally show that she has, in fact, grown and matured, which was evident, I think, in all the decisions that we witnessed. Also, the strong parental overtones that were consistent throughout. I mean, from the discussion between Kate and Cassidy to Roger and Linus finally having his father, Gene, kick in, and to the grocery store scene, which is intense. I mean, this really helped the story for me, you know, being a parent and all. But there's so many layers, and I'm sure you guys will cover all those. Um, oh, ah, the fun moment which I thoroughly enjoyed, was watching Hurley and Miles do their best impersonation of the transmission. I mean, with Hurley playing the general and Miles playing the role of Ryan, I think uh, they got you guys down pat. I mean, this was definitely an all-time classic scene. Uh, So my question for the week is, in the future we've seen prior to this episode, we saw where Ben and Roger were in the VW bug right before the purge happens. He states, um, Ben states, you know, I really miss her too. And he's referencing his mom. And in this episode, Richard had a line to Kate about young Ben losing his innocence and forgetting, you know, quote, unquote, all this. Seems to be a conflict with what we've seen before. So I'll wait to hear you, you know, your thoughts. And uh, obviously for me, this is still the best podcast available. Thank you for all y'all's hard work. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey, Ryan and Jen. This is Lucia from Oakland. Hey, happy anniversary. That's terrific. I hope you have many, many, many happy, happy, happy more. And, uh, boy, I am so so addicted to this um, uh, this timeline that's going on here. Um, I have a question, though. I keep musing about Harper and how she told Juliet, you look just like her. So I want to know, how does Harper know that? So here are some of my thoughts. So Harper is another. She is the same general age as Ben, probably one of the children and the others school maybe they were a few years apart but about the same age i'm wondering did ben follow juliet around after he was returned without his memory to the dharma initiative was it obvious to everybody else that he had a crush on juliet you know all these questions about how much does ben remember what doesn't he remember that's of course everyone's wondering about and i'm sure we'll find out pretty soon but then i had another question is Perhaps is Harper Annie. Maybe that was the situation, and she was upset because um, suddenly Ben's attention was on this uh, grown-up Juliet. So just some thoughts, and uh, I'm loving your podcast. I'm really loving reading everybody's post on the blog. It's certainly um, mind-expanding and confusing and wonderful and addictive, and I can't wait till next week. All right. Thanks. Bye. 
Mahalo for those calls. Now, Jeff, we had just said that, you know, Saria is the, the epitome of the 180, uh-huh. but it's not just a drastic change. It's not a jarring change. It's something that he feels was deftly handled. I absolutely. Handled. I agree. Yeah, he's uh, he's still a likable character, even though he's not the same character. That's what I find to be the accomplishment here. We loved when he was the rebel, the troublemaker, you know, stealing things and hoarding things. And you and can yet... tell he's got a tiny little sliver of that bad boy still in there somewhere. Yeah, and I think that's probably going to come back, too. But I do believe that uh, I agree with Jeff that it was well handled here on the show. <laughs> Mark from Houston saying that the conversation kind of sounds like our podcast. I would say that the conversation sounds like every podcast. Yes. Every like fan any, debate. Any pair of fans who have ever had a conversation about the show sounded like Ben and Mark. But I, again, I, that, that, was, that was definitely a high point, I guess, for all of us who recognized ourselves in that scene. Uh, so shall we be calling you the general from now on? <laughs> Probably not. No. But he also points out the strong parental overtones. I definitely saw that. And, you know, a lot of people who commented or called in kind of basically expressed how much they identified with what was going on here. Kyle in Delaware had a, has a young blonde boy himself. And, you know, uh, Mark mentioning the uh, having his father gene kick in there for Roger and the scene in the grocery store. Uh-huh. So there, the parenthood has always been an issue here on Lost. Yeah. I think fatherhood has always been a stronger element. But we've, we've noted in earlier podcasts that even motherhood and maternity – Mm-hmm. is certainly an issue as well. So definitely a good entry along that theme. And finally, Lucia, um, bringing in a topic we briefly covered about uh, whether, you know, Harper, the kid who says you look just like him, how does that work in what we're seeing right now? Where is Harper and what's going I on? I don't know. I'd completely forgotten about Harper. I don't I don't know where she fits into this. I agree that Harper has to be a kid like Ben, you know, and I think that uh, when we get down to it, if we are going to allow the fact that Ben doesn't forget everything, that Ben just remembers being rescued by being taken to the temple if he does believe that Juliet was his savior and starts mooning after her that 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 could be one reason why everybody remembers that but do you think there's any chance that Harper is Annie I think Annie's dead I think that well I'm not sure if she's dead well that would play into the way that Ben as an adult is acting about how things went Uh you know in the purge probably that would probably fit I mean I guess they're both they both kind of have long brown hair and uh, you 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 know they have trouble matching younger actors with their older versions but I just didn't get the feeling well for example Harper was married to Goodwin right Right. and Goodwin had an affair with Juliet Juliet. I think that if if Harper was a young child and saw an older Juliet and then grew up to marry a man who then has an affair with Juliet, that that'd just be a little bit too much. That'd be just a little too circular, or just a little too creepy for that to have, have unfolded. Right. I, I do I do like her observation that uh, Harper is probably a child right now and running around in 1977. I just don't think that uh, I don't know. she's Annie. Well, I think we've got room for uh, one more voicemail. Who we got? Eric from Oakland. Hi, Ryan and Jen. This is Eric from Oakland, California. Long-time listener, second-time caller. I wanted to call about a theory about the time travel. I believe that anything that the Losties do in 1977 doesn't change anything before 2007 in the present time. So, for instance, when Desmond woke up with a dream that Daniel had talked to him, it was the Losties and Daniel time traveling in their own 2007 timeline. And so it, it came into Desmond's consciousness at that point. It couldn't have, he couldn't have remembered it before that moment when they time traveled and told him. So similarly in this week's episode, 
when Ben almost died, that's why the Ben in 2007 was in the infirmary and dying because of what was happening in the 1977 island. And so when Kate and Sawyer and then Richard Alpert saved Ben, then he woke up in 2007. So I don't think that anything that Saeed shooting Ben, he, there's no way Ben could have known that when he first met Saeed in 2004. It hadn't happened in Saeed's timeline yet. Okay, well, hopefully that made some sense. Thank you for a wonderful podcast. Bye. Thanks for your call there, Eric, taking a valiant effort at explaining what could be happening with time travel and memory. And, uh, well, what do you think about his explanation? Well, does he mean that when Ben went into the temple, he time-shifted? No, I mean, no, I don't think there's a frozen donkey wheel in there or anything. I okay. think specifically he's looking at what happened with Danielle Faraday and Desmond, and that in a way, Daniel Faraday did change, in quote marks, the future, because it is only after he had that conversation with Desmond outside the hatch that Desmond in the present remember instantly that he had that conversation. It, oh. He couldn't remember it up until that point, but then it shows up. Okay. So he says, okay, maybe we're getting a hint because we see young Ben near death for a long period of time while we also know that Ben in the present is in the infirmary and unconscious. Only when we see Ben carried into the temple by Richard Alpert this week does also um, Ben come to in the present and sees Locke sitting there. So if okay. that's sort of an explanation of how these parallels might be happening, that... I think what he's saying is that when uh, it is only when Ben wakes up sitting next to Locke will all of the memories generated by the events that we've seen here in season five will appear in his brain. That now he'll remember that Saeed shot him, but he couldn't have remembered it up until this point because of something like that. Well, that's, <laughs> his guess is as good as mine, so sure. There you go. Um, for whatever reason, uh, we agree with you, Eric. And again, we love all the calls to our Lost Line. We listen to them all, even though we can't include them all. This week, I'd like to include extra shout-outs to Marv in Northern California, Sarah from Minnesota, Casey from Chicago, first-time Lost viewer Bowen from New Jersey, uh, Wilton at Las Alamitas High, who is excited to read about physicist Michael Faraday <laughs> in his textbook. We'd also like to thank Nick and Kristen for their fun call and Absolutely. their anniversary wishes and congratulations on your masters Kristen. Absolutely congratulations. So let's move on to our blog comments and email. Stephen writes an email. So watching whatever happened happened it occurred to me that Ben was bleeding from the wrong place. At the end of He's Are You Ben was pretty obviously shot in the heart on the left side of his chest but when they turned him over at the beginning of this week's episode he appeared to be bleeding from the right side and lower down. Well there you go I think basically that's dirty tricks in TV. I mean we had a call last Last week, we're like, he's got to be dead. I mean, Saeed's a sniper. It was right in his heart. You could see right where it landed, and then they go and move it. So Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think that there's going to be some good basis for a little bit of frustration there. But everyone was also convinced last week that Ben was not dead, except for that guy, I guess. So it, in one way or another, they had to accomplish this. Uh, Sue writes in an email, I didn't buy that the reason Kate went back to the island was to look for Claire. I know that it was probably a big reveal, but what has Kate done to look for Claire? She has not even inquired about the whereabouts of anyone else. In addition, spending three years raising a child and losing him in a grocery store would not make me want to give up a child, especially in about a day's time. I did feel that she did a great job at the end, and it was emotional, but I also feel that Michael Giacchino's score added to the emotions. Similarly, Mirapa from Montreal replies, 
says there are far too many snakes to swallow in this episode. <laughs> How the hell can Kate have such a strong reaction on the dock and shift her mind so diametrically a few hours later? Because she feels she would be a bad mother because of Cassidy? I'm just not buying this. Well, I think in response to both of those uh, skeptical comments, uh, Emily in Colorado writes, I like that Kate came back for Claire because she loves Aaron so much she wants to find his mom and be honest and not feel like she is always running and at risk of losing him. It set her up tonight to be the one who did the right thing by saving baby Ben, just like last week when all the killing and sinister interactions with Ben set Saeed up to put a bullet through his 12-year-old belly. We saw why Kate would be motivated to help this child, just like how we saw Saeed's motivation to kill him last week. Jeff and Cape Coral writes, as to the more specific points to not buying Kate's motivations, I disagree with the assertion that her story wasn't believable. The arc of her story within this episode took place over the span of three years, during which time she grew as an individual and as a mother, and by the end was being haunted by the fact that she knew Aaron didn't truly belong to her. What we saw of her relationship with Cassidy was just the tip of the iceberg, and while their first meeting was predictably icy, by the end they had grown close enough that Clementine called Kate aunt. Mm -hmm. The notion that the characters on this program don't ever change has been discussed recently by Jen in this podcast, but I felt it was dispelled in this episode, not only by telling Kate's story, but also in the conversations Kate had in 1977 with both Jack and Sawyer. So I just love when these conversations kind of conduct themselves on our blog. Yeah, and people I love are answering that. each other's questions. We had over 180 comments so far and still a lot to read if you come by and check it out. I would say to uh, Mirapoy, I believe that, you know, why isn't, or actually it was Sue, like why hasn't Kate asked about anyone else? Actually, I think she was the only person to ask somebody uh, who else is here. And then they, right. they cut to um, Juliet. So, of course, that was probably what they were they were telegraphing, but I do think that she at least expressed some crea some some curiosity about other people that might be on the island. Philip writes in an email, I think the most important aspect of this was Jack refusing to operate on Ben and how he is trying trying to change by not getting involved. We saw in the previous episode how Saeed could not change who he was, that he is and always will be a killer. Perhaps Jack is challenging fate by trying to change himself from doctor to whatever it is he's supposed to be. This will turn out badly. Jack is not thinking Yet again, he is reacting to what he thinks he should be doing instead of just doing. Too much thinking and reacting will ultimately lead to Jack getting his hands on a gun. Sam writes, I think Jack's subdued nature is perfectly understandable. For the last four seasons, it seemed every time he has tried to lead, there is an unexplainable or supernatural twist. Remember, this is a guy who was seconds away from suicide, was addicted to narcotics, feels responsible for many lives lost and decisions made, and has a haunting dead or not so dead father. Every step of the way, Jack's leadership was questioned, and then when he challenged Sawyer upon returning to the island, he was once again criticized. Jack isn't a wimp. He just doesn't see the point in controlling things like before. With the experiences on and off the island, he is no longer a man of science, but a man of faith. So some good thoughts on Jack there. And, uh, you know, once more someone else saying as earlier that he's being kind of lock-like, he's becoming a man of faith, and that by his inaction, um, he's still in many ways making a very assertive stance, taking a very strong position mm -hmm. about what he, well, in this case, won't do. And I kind of like that it will, in fact, some way lead up to something big, but I do kind of, uh, I'm worried about what Philip says, that in many ways this is going to end badly, that actually these things in the past have meant 
bad things for Jack. Yeah. And uh, if, if it does end up with Jack doing something with a gun, that would certainly be kind of returning to form for the poor guy. Shadow writes on the blog, I'm still a little confused over Sawyer and Juliet's attitude toward Jack et al. returning to the island. For three years, Sawyer has had Jin combing the island looking for them to return. When Locke left the island, he told Sawyer, Juliet, and Miles that he would bring them all back and that their return would fix everything. Sawyer told his companions that they would wait as long as it took for them to return. So why all the attitude now? Why is Juliet telling Jack that they don't need to be saved? Why are they so cold to Jack? Why did they act like Kate and Jack and Hurley are a nuisance? Well, I think that, uh, I don't think it's necessarily inconsistent. I mean, basically, it's true that they were waiting, that Sawyer was insistent that Locke would bring them all back, and that would be a good thing. I think, though, that what, just like what uh, Sawyer says, we've been here three years, no flaming vans, you're here one day, and, you know, look at how things turned out. I think, basically, uh, it didn't turn out the way that they expected. That well, I return... think they also fear what's going to happen to them if, if the DI finds out who they are. True, true, I think they're just really trying to keep things on the, you know, quiet, and I think Sawyer feels like if... Jack and Hurley and Kate aren't watched that their cover will be blown. Well, but I do think that Shadow is making a good point. You've got two basic motivations going on here. Are our folks on the in the Dharma Initiative trying to preserve their happy, idyllic, little playing house life, or are they trying to do something greater and we're waiting for the return of the rest of their group? So I think that uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a certainly a fair question. Finally, let's go to Robin from the TVCritic.org and uh, he writes, I think when you go into the temple, you are possessed Possessed by a soul that is trapped in time on the island. They have access to the body's memories, but they aren't the original person, sort of a host-symbiont relationship like on Stargate. It would explain why babies always die. The souls are trying to take possession, and the stress is too great for an infant. The others do take children who might make better vessels. Also, a future trapped soul might have the goal of getting his past self to the island so he can inhabit his own body again." Any thoughts about that? Sounds very Egyptian. I think that there's uh, certainly a lot of clues toward that end. And we've had these theories about what's going on with Jacob. Why does he say, help me? And what is he trying to get Locke to help him to do? Uh And certainly maybe bringing himself back or getting him back in touch with his corporeal self might be one of the motivations of these these spirits that are going on here in the temple. It is a little, I think more supernatural than some fans might like. It, it scares me a little bit. I mean, it's plausible. It's totally plausible, but it scares me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, well, I mean, Anthony from Philly left a fun voicemail that he is talking to his sister, and she said that, oh, you know when uh, Richard Alpert was carrying Ben into the temple or was talking to uh, Sire and uh, Kate, it looked like he was staring at his neck. I think that he's a <laughs> vampire, and he's, you know, and that, you know, he's like, well, maybe it's because she just read and saw Twilight, but you can see that you can even go that way, because they talk about losing your innocence, uh-huh. right, and talk about not being the same, and talk about always being one of us from that point forward, which is a theme of vampire stories. Yeah, very much. Uh, I think, though, basically, it just remains to be seen what the temple does, and uh, fortunately, it sounds like we're going to get a pretty, hopefully, a fairly concise or quick answer to that in next week's episode yes so that's it for you all everybody this week but we love to hear from you every week so when you see the next episode of lost please let us know what you thought call us on the lost line at 
356-0127. Drop us an email at lost at hawaiiup.com or leave a comment on the blog at hawaiiup.com slash lost. That's right. We love to hear from you. So we've heard our two cents. We've heard your two cents. I guess that means it's time to move into the forward cabin. This is where we hide production news, filming reports, spoilers, and all kinds of fun stuff. So if you don't want to know what's coming up, you might want to skip ahead. First up, let's tackle what the ABC preview said was coming up next week on Lost. We see Ben in the temple. He tells Locke he broke the rules and says, I came back to the island to be judged. We see him pointing a gun on a boat dock saying, not another word. And he says, what's about to come out of that jungle I can't control. The ABC announcer says, from the moment he came into their lives, every survivor has prayed this time would come. Next Wednesday, for the most dangerous man on the island, Judgment Day is here. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the title of the episode is Dead is Dead. And the official ABC synopsis reads... To atone for sins of the past, Ben must attempt to summon the smoke monster in order to be judged. Sounds, Sounds pretty, pretty good. pretty darn good. I mean, any episode with the smoke monster gets a lot of folks excited, and it's a Ben episode. I mean, clearly it was set up that it's going to be uh, connecting what's going on in 1977 and what's going on in the present, so I'm very excited. Now, um, as you recall, last week I lamented the fact that production was ending, that it was, in fact, the last day of filming, and so there would be few reports to share here in the forward cast. So, of course, Sunday, the day that we released the podcast, there was more filming. And I think, frankly, they did it just to make me look like a fool. But Yeah, they turned the frozen donkey wheel and they did. made it happen. They just snuck it in. But uh, it was actually a good one. Um, I heard from several Lost spotters, uh, Kanahina, uh, Brett, Chrissy, and Bob. And they all spotted Lost working on the corner of Oahe Street and Kamani Street, just off Ward Avenue near Fisherman's Wharf. And uh, they put up street signs to read Santa Monica Bull. Boulevard and La Brea Avenue. So they're depicting an intersection in Los Angeles. So they had several cars standing by with California plates, and they first filmed a scene with a speeding car that left a woman lying in the road. Then I got there. We watched Saeed, or Naveen Andrews, running over to the fallen woman and laying with her in the street, holding her close and whispering in her ear. And it was only when they pulled her to her feet did it become clear that the woman in the street was Andrea Gabriel, who, of course, plays... uh, Nadia or Saeed's wife, the woman that uh, made the happiest few months of his life. So definitely a heartbreaking scene um, that we're revisiting a pivotal point in his life. Uh, they did a very close-up shot of him lying with her in the street and his, putting his hand on her so you could see both of their wedding rings together. Uh, it's definitely going to be a heartbreaker. Um, but that wasn't it. They still had some other pickup shoots and filming going on. Um, Daryl, who uh, was a lost spotter, saw them filming near the blowhole. That's just past Sandy beach it's actually a very favorite uh, shoreline of theirs and he didn't see much but an old friend of the show uh, Doug uh, aka Lost Viking he was he's over at the Lost TV forums he got pretty darn close to that filming he saw specifically a helicopter there an unfamiliar one it was very dirty like uh, just literally covered with mud and dirt like it's been sitting for a long time it was maybe camouflaged or covered or even buried and uh, certainly since it's another aircraft it makes you wonder if it's another arrival on the 
Island. Um, cool. And specifically, Doug says that he saw an Asian woman that was not Sun and a Caucasian male in the scene. And that's got a lot of folks buzzing because I'm not sure if we mentioned previously, there's a lot of theories that one of the big twists for season five is that we're going to jump way ahead in the future and actually see young Aaron and young Ji Yun as young adults and that they were going to come back to the island that's to look exciting. for their parents. So if that's the case, uh, fantastic. Who knows? And finally, uh, over on Dark UFO, they had a good uh, write-up of a temple set that was built, basically a little small village surrounding a large, deep pit in the center, kind of a fire pit. And uh, they said that Michael Emerson and Terry O'Quinn was there. So perhaps, again, this is near or tied to the temple where our others are at. Cool. So that's it for the filming reports. And heaven knows if there are any more. I'd certainly love it. But otherwise, again, they're basically setting about the hard work of editing and putting together the last few hours of season five. And certainly they do fantastic work. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. So that's it for the Forward Cabin. And that means that that's it for this episode of The Transmission. Remember, we'll be back after the next week. Uh, the new episode called Dead is Dead on April 8th. And after you see it, we certainly want to hear from you. Call us on the Lost Line at 808 356 Leave a comment on the blog at hawaiiup.com slash lost or drop us an email at lost at hawaiiup.com. Remember that the transmission is available in both MP3 and enhanced AAC formats. That gives you chapter marks so you can skip around to the parts you like the most. We really appreciate all your feedback and support. Those of you who've gone to audiblepodcast.com slash transmission or tried out the uh, Lost t-shirts. Yeah. And uh, actually Jeff, uh, X-Force 11 on Twitter and uh, here on the podcast earlier, he bought the Cafeteria Hurley shirt and even posted a picture of it. So, hey, actually, I'm going to put that picture in the post for this podcast. And if you get an official Lost t-shirt, we'll put it up as well. In any case, everybody, thanks for listening. Stay lost. Aloha. This podcast is a proud member of the Lost Podcasting Network. Get all your favorite Lost podcasts in one feed at lostcasts.blogspot.com.